Section 11 of Chapter 21 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 21, Section 11. With the fate of the law which restored the currency was closely connected the fate of another law, which had been several years under the consideration of Parliament, and had caused several warm disputes between the hereditary and the elective branch of the legislature. The session had scarcely commenced when the bill for regulating trials in cases of high treason was again laid on the table of the Commons. Of the debates to which it gave occasion, nothing is known except one interesting circumstance which has been preserved by tradition. Among those who supported the bill appeared conspicuous a young Whig of high rank, of ample fortune, and of great abilities which had been assiduously improved by study. This was Antony Ashley Cooper, Lord Ashley, eldest son of the second Earl of Shaftesbury, and grandson of that renowned politician who had, in the days of Charles the Second, been at one time the most unprincipled of ministers, and at another the most unprincipled of demagogues. Ashley had just been returned to Parliament for the borough of Poole, and was in his twenty-fifth year. In the course of his speech he faltered, stammered and seemed to lose the thread of his reasoning. The house, then as now indulgent to novices, and then as now well aware that on a first appearance the hesitation which is the effect of modesty and sensibility is quite as promising a sign as volubility of utterance and ease of manner, encouraged him to proceed. How can I, sir, said the young orator, recovering himself, produce a stronger argument in favour of this bill than my own failure? My fortune, my character, my life are not at stake. I am speaking to an audience whose kindness might well inspire me with courage, and yet from mere nervousness, from mere want of practice in addressing large assemblies, I have lost my recollection. I am unable to go on with my argument. How helpless, then, must be a poor man who, never having opened his lips in public, is called upon to reply, without a moment's preparation, to the ablest and most experienced advocates in the kingdom, and whose faculties are paralysed by the thought that, if he fails to convince his hearers, he will in a few hours die on a gallows and leave beggary and infamy to those who are dearest to him. It may reasonably be suspected that Ashley's confusion and the ingenious use to which he made of it had been carefully premeditated. His speech, however, made a great impression, and probably raised expectations which were not fulfilled. His health was delicate, 
his taste was refined even to fastidiousness, he soon left politics to men whose bodies and minds were of coarser texture than his own, gave himself up to mere intellectual luxury, lost himself in the mazes of the old academic philosophy, and aspired to the glory of reviving the old academic eloquence. His diction, affected and florid, but often singularly beautiful and melodious, fascinated many young enthusiasts. He had not merely disciples, but worshippers. His life was short, but he lived long enough to become the founder of a new sect of English freethinkers, diametrically opposed in opinions and feelings to that sect of freethinkers of which Hobbes was the oracle. During many years the characteristics continued to be the gospel of romantic and sentimental unbelievers, while the gospel of cold-blooded and hard-headed unbelievers was the Leviathan. The bill, so often brought in and so often lost, went through the commons without a division, and was carried up to the lords. It soon came back with the long-disputed clause altering the constitution of the court of the Lord High Steward. A strong party among the representatives of the people was still unwilling to grant any new privilege to the nobility, but the moment was critical. The misunderstanding which had arisen between the houses touching the recoinage bill had produced inconveniences which might well alarm even a bold politician. It was necessary to purchase concession by concession. The Commons, by a hundred and ninety-two votes to a hundred and fifty, agreed to the amendment on which the Lords had, during four years, so obstinately insisted, and the Lords, in return, immediately passed the recoinage bill without any amendment. There had been much contention as to the time at which the new system of procedure in cases of high treason should come into operation, and the bill had once been lost in consequence of a dispute on this point. Many persons were of opinion that the change ought not to take place till the close of the war. It was notorious, they said, that the foreign enemy was abetted by too many traitors at home and at such a time the severity of the laws which protected the commonwealth against the machinations of bad citizens ought not to be relaxed. It was at last determined that the new regulations should take effect on the 25th of March, the first day according to the old calendar of the year 1696. On the 21st of January the recoinage bill and the bill for regulating trials in cases of high treason received the royal assent. On the following day the commons repaired to Kensington on an errand by no means agreeable either to themselves or to the king. They were, as a body, fully resolved to support him at whatever cost and whatever hazard against every foreign and domestic foe but they were, as indeed every assembly of 513 English gentlemen that could by any process 
have been brought together must have been, jealous of the favour which he showed to the friends of his youth. He had set his heart on placing the house of Bentinck on a level in wealth and splendour with the houses of Howard and Seymour, of Russell and Cavendish. Some of the fairest hereditary domains of the crown had been granted to Portland, not without murmuring on the part both of Whigs and Tories. Nothing had been done, it is true, which was not in conformity with the letter of the law and with a long series of precedents. Every English sovereign had from time immemorial considered the lands to which he had succeeded in virtue of his office as his private property. Every family that had been great in England, from the De Veres down to the Hydes, had been enriched by royal deeds of gift. Charles the Second had carved ducal estates for his bastards out of his hereditary domain, nor did the Bill of Rights contain a word which could be construed to mean that the king was not at perfect liberty to alienate any part of the estates of the crown. At first, therefore, William's liberality to his countrymen, though it caused much discontent, called forth no remonstrance from the Parliament. But he at length went too far. In 1695 he ordered the Lords of the Treasury to make out a warrant granting to Portland a magnificent estate in Denbyshire. This estate was said to be worth more than a hundred thousand pounds. The annual income, therefore, can hardly have been less than six thousand pounds, and the annual rent which was reserved to the Crown was only six and eightpence. This, however, was not the worst. With the property were inseparably connected extensive royalties which the people of North Wales could not patiently see in the hands of any subject. More than a century before, Elizabeth had bestowed a part of the same territory on her favourite, Leicester. On that occasion the population of Denbyshire had risen in arms, and after much tumult and several executions, Leicester had thought it advisable to resign his mistress's gift back to her. The opposition to Portland was less violent, but not less effective. Some of the chief gentlemen of the Principality made strong representations to the ministers through whose offices the warrant had to pass, and at length brought the subject under the consideration of the lower house. An address was unanimously voted, requesting the King to stop the grant. Portland begged that he might not be the cause of a dispute between his master and the Parliament, and the King, though much mortified, yielded to the general wish of the nation. This unfortunate affair, though it terminated without an open quarrel, left much sore feeling. The King was angry with the Commons, and still more angry with the Whig ministers, who had not ventured to defend his grant. The loyal affection which the Parliament had testified to him during the first days of the session 
and he was almost as unpopular as he had ever been, when an event took place which suddenly brought back to him the hearts of millions, and made him for a time as much the idol of the nation as he had been at the end of 1688. The plan of assassination which had been formed in the preceding spring had been given up in consequence of William's departure for the continent. The plan of insurrection which had been formed in the summer had been given up for want of help from France. But before the end of the autumn both plans were resumed. William had returned to England, and the possibility of getting rid of him by a lucky shot or stab was again seriously discussed. The French troops had gone into winter quarters, and the force which Charnock had in vain demanded while war was raging round Namur might now be spared without inconvenience. Now, therefore, a plot was laid, more formidable than any that had yet threatened the throne and the life of William, or rather, as has more than once happened in our history, two plots were laid, one within the other. The object of the greater plot was an open insurrection, an insurrection which was to be supported by a foreign army. In this plot, almost all the Jacobites of note were more or less concerned. Some laid in arms, some brought horses, some made lists of the servants and tenants in whom they could place firm reliance. The less warlike members of the party could at least take off bumpers to the king over the water, and intimate by significant shrugs and whispers that he would not be over the water long. It was universally remarked that the malcontents looked wiser than usual when they were sober, and bragged more loudly than usual when they were drunk. To the smaller plot, of which the object was the murder of William, only a few select traitors were privy. Each of these plots was under the direction of a leader specially sent from Saint-Germain. The more honourable mission was entrusted to Berwick. He was charged to communicate with the Jacobite nobility and gentry, to ascertain what force they could bring into the field, and to fix a time for the rising. He was authorised to assure them that the French government was collecting troops and transports at Calais, and that, as soon as it was known there that a rebellion had broken out in England, his father would embark with twelve thousand veteran soldiers, and would be among them in a few hours. A more hazardous part was assigned to an emissary of lower rank, but of great address, activity, and courage. This was Sir George Barclay, a Scotch gentleman who had served with credit under Dundee, and who, when the war in the Highlands had ended, had retired to Saint-Germain. Barclay was called into the royal closet, and received his orders from the royal lips. He was directed to steal across the Channel, and to repair to London. He was told that a few select officers and soldiers 
should speedily follow him by twos and threes. That they might have no difficulty in finding him, he was to walk on Mondays and Thursdays in the piazza of Covent Garden after nightfall, with a white handkerchief hanging from his coat pocket. He was furnished with a considerable sum of money, and with a commission which was not only signed, but written from beginning to end by James himself. This commission authorized the bearer to do from time to time such acts of hostility against the Prince of Orange and that Prince's adherents as should most conduce to the service of the King. What explanation of these very comprehensive words was orally given by James, we are not informed. Lest Barclay's absence from Saint-Germain should cause any suspicion, it was given out that his loose way of life had made it necessary for him to put himself under the care of a surgeon at Paris. He set out with eight hundred pounds in his portmanteau, hastened to the coast, and embarked on board of a privateer which was employed by the Jacobites as a regular packet-boat between France and England. This vessel conveyed him to a desolate spot in Romney Marsh. About half a mile from the landing-place, a smuggler named Hunt lived on a dreary and unwholesome fen where he had no neighbours but a few rude shepherds. His dwelling was singularly well situated for a contraband traffic in French wares. Cargoes of Lyons silk and Valenciennes lace sufficient to load thirty pack-horses had repeatedly been landed in that dismal solitude without attracting notice. But since the revolution Hunt had discovered that of all cargoes a cargo of traitors paid best. His lonely abode became the resort of men of high consideration, earls and barons, knights and doctors of divinity. Some of them lodged many days under his roof while waiting for a passage. A clandestine post was established between his house and London. The couriers were constantly going and returning. They performed their journeys up and down on foot but they appeared to be gentlemen, and it was whispered that one of them was the son of a titled man. The letters from Saint-Germain were few and small. Those directed to Saint-Germain were numerous and bulky. They were made up like parcels of millinery, and were buried in the morass till they were called for by the privateer. Here Barclay landed in January 1696, and hence he took the road to London. He was followed a few days later by a tall youth who concealed his name, but who produced credentials of the highest authority. The youth, too, proceeded to London. Hunt afterwards discovered that his humble roof had had the honour of sheltering the Duke of Berwick. The part which Barclay had to perform was difficult and hazardous, and he omitted no precaution. He had been little in London, and his face was consequently unknown to the agents of the government. Nevertheless, he had several lodgings. 
he disguised himself so well that his oldest friends would not have known him by broad daylight, and yet he seldom ventured into the streets except in the dark. His chief agent was a monk, who under several names heard confessions and said masses at the risk of his neck. This man intimated to some of the zealots with whom he consorted a special agent of the royal family was to be spoken with in Covent Garden on certain nights at a certain hour and might be known by certain signs. In this way Barclay became acquainted with several men fit for his purpose. The first persons to whom he fully opened himself were Charnock and Parkins. He talked with them about the plot which they and some of their friends had formed in the preceding spring against the life of William. Both Charnock and Parkins declared that the scheme might easily be executed, that there was no want of resolute hearts among the royalists, and that all that was wanting was some sign of his majesty's approbation. Then Barclay produced his commission. He showed his two accomplices that James had expressly commanded all good Englishmen not only to rise in arms, not only to make war on the usurping government, not only to seize forts and towns, but also to do from time to time such other acts of hostility against the Prince of Orange as might be for the royal service. These words, Barclay said, plainly authorized an attack on the Prince's person. Charnock and Parkins were satisfied. How, in truth, was it possible for them to doubt that James's confidential agent correctly construed James's expressions? Nay, how was it possible for them to understand the large words of the commission in any sense but one, even if Barclay had not been there to act as commentator? If, indeed, the subject had never been brought under James's consideration, it might well be thought that those words had dropped from his pen without any definite meaning. But he had been repeatedly apprised that some of his friends in England meditated a deed of blood, and that they were waiting only for his approbation. They had importuned him to speak one word, to give one sign. He had long kept silence, and now that he had broken silence, he merely told them to do whatever might be beneficial to himself and prejudicial to the usurper. They had his authority as plainly given as they could reasonably expect to have it given in such a case. All that remained was to find a sufficient number of courageous and trustworthy assistants, to provide horses and weapons, and to fix the hour and the place of the slaughter. Forty or fifty men, it was thought, would be sufficient. Those troopers of James's guard, who had already followed Barclay across the channel, made up nearly half that number. James had himself seen some of these men before their departure from Saint-Germain, had given them money for their journey, had told them 
by what name each of them was to pass in England, had commanded them to act as though they should be directed by Barclay, and had informed them where Barclay was to be found, and by what tokens he was to be known. They were ordered to depart in small parties, and to assign different reasons for going. Some were ill, some were weary of the service. Castles, one of the most noisy and profane among them, announced that since he could not get military promotion, he should enter at the Scotch College and study for a learned profession. Under such pretexts, about twenty picked men left the Palace of James, made their way by Romney Marsh to London, and found their captain walking in the dim lamplight of the piazza with the handkerchief hanging from his pocket. One of these men was Ambrose Rockwood, who held the rank of brigadier, and who had a high reputation for courage and honour. Another was Major John Bernardi, an adventurer of Genoese extraction, whose name has derived a melancholy celebrity from a punishment so strangely prolonged that it at length shocked a generation which could not remember his crime. It was in these adventurers from France that Barclay placed his chief trust. In a moment of elation, he once called them his janissaries, and expressed a hope that they would get him the George and Garter. But twenty more assassins at least were wanted. The conspirators probably expected valuable help from Sir John Friend, who had received a colonel's commission signed by James, and had been most active in enlisting men and providing arms against the day when the French should appear on the coast of Kent. The design was imparted to him, but he thought it so rash and so likely to bring reproach and disaster on the good cause that he would lend no assistance to his friends though he kept their secret religiously. Charnock undertook to find eight brave and trusty fellows. He communicated the design to Porter, not with Barclay's entire approbation, for Barclay appears to have thought that a tavern brawler, who had recently been in prison for swaggering drunk about the streets and huzzaing in honour of the Prince of Wales, was hardly to be trusted with a secret of such fearful import. Porter entered into the plot with enthusiasm, and promised to bring in others who would be useful. Among those whose help he engaged was his servant, Thomas Keyes. Keyes was a far more formidable conspirator than might have been expected from his station in life. The household troops generally were devoted to William, but there was a taint of disaffection among the Blues. The chief conspirators had already been tampering with some Roman Catholics who were in that regiment, and Keyes was excellently qualified to bear a part in this work, for he had formerly been trumpeter of the corps, and though he had quitted the service, he still kept up an acquaintance with some of the old soldiers in whose company he had lived at free quarter on the Somersetshire farmers after the Battle of Sedgemoor. 
End of section 11.